We're passionate believers in the Word of God. We're passionate believers in the fact that it's true and that it means something and that it has a transformative effect on our lives, uh, whether we realize it or not. And so for that reason, we spend a lot of time talking about the Word of God. We worship over the Word. So if you don't have a copy of God's Word or, or an app on your phone or anything like that, you'll see the passage that I'm pre- preaching on this morning printed for you uh, in the order of worship you received as you walked in uh, this morning. And if you need a copy of God's Word, we're, we have some of those available, and we're more than happy to get that for you. But this morning we're going to be looking at the Gospel of John. We're in the book of John. We've been going through that uh, every time I've been preaching to us, and it's a wonderful, wonderful book. It's written by one of Jesus' disciples. If you want to know about Christ, if you want to know who he is, who he says he is, the best thing to do is to get an eyewitness account, and that's what we have here in the Gospel of John. But John is a great writer, and he writes for a very specific purpose. It's not just his journal entries. Uh, it's, he is r- trying to make a persuasive point, and he lets us know. He tells us that at the end of this book, in chapter 20 and verse 30, he says this, and if you're not used to looking at a Bible, the big numbers of the chapters and the little numbers of the verses, and this is what he says in 20 verse 30, uh, now Jesus did many other things in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. This is an exhaustive book. It'd be much bigger. Okay? But these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in Him you may have life in His name. We're going to talk more about what that belief actually is. It's in our passage this morning, but the goal of this passage, the goal of this sermon is that you might be convinced and who Jesus Christ is, that he is the eternal son of God, that he is the Messiah, that he is your one true hope in life and in death. That is the goal of this book. And what's interesting is that it has been used over the centuries by thousands of thousands of people to achieve the goal that we're talking about this morning, which is this idea that Jesus gives, this illustration that Jesus gives about what salvation is and how it comes, that of being born again. And thousands and thousands of people over the years have read the Gospel of John and have had that happen to them. At King's Church, as you've heard, what we want is for you to experience God, find community, live on purpose. And all of that starts with this, being born Again, just real quick, let's catch up to chapter 3. Just let me throw a couple notes at you. The context is always important when we get to a passage to know what's going on. In the, in the few sections before that, John has declared in chapter 1 in his prologue where he summarizes everything he's going to say that Jesus always was. There was a never time that he wasn't. He is eternal. And he is God himself come in human beings. That God is man and he, that Jesus is man and he is God at the same time. And then he introduces another character, John the Baptist, this wild preacher man who has a strange clothes about him that is preaching this radical message to people who thought they were okay. He's saying to them, you need to repent of your sins, and he gathers a movement around him. He talks about that. And then Jesus chooses his first disciple, his first follower, and then Jesus does this crazy thing that I think inspires the event we're about to read about. Okay? Jesus goes into the temple and sees that there are people selling animals and exchanging money, and he makes a whip of, out of ropes, and he literally beats the animal changers, out of the animal sellers, out of the temple and flips over all the tables, sending money everywhere. 
Now, obviously, the religious establishment, the political leaders of the time were extremely upset about this. And I think it's what drove Nicodemus to ask some of the questions that he's asking that we're going to look at this morning. So all of that is, is, is happening. And then right after he clears the temples, he, he does many miracles. And that John, John just summarizes it that way. He says, Jesus did many miracles. Okay? And so the watching world at this time is having to deal with who Jesus is. And it's the same thing that I'm asking you to do today, to deal with who Jesus is. He was this normal carpenter, 30 years of life, doesn't seem to be any kind of extravagant whatsoever. And then all of a sudden he comes on the scene and does this crazy thing of, of, um, of clearing out the temple and then does many miracles. And so many people at the time, and I would argue you, don't know what to do with him. Nicodemus being one of them comes in, and Jesus says, you have to enter the kingdom of God only by being born again. Now, I think this is a fitting passage for us to look at today, and here's why. I grew up in South Carolina. I grew up in Columbia. Many of you probably did as well, and growing up in the belt buckle, the Bible belt, one of the biggest challenges is that we are actually very similar to the audience of this passage. We're actually very similar to Nicodemus himself in the fact that we think we know what it means to enter the kingdom of God or to be saved, if you're familiar with religious speak, or, or to go to heaven or to be okay with God. We're pretty sure because all of us in some form or fashion have been around church and the gospel in a pretty significant way. I very rarely meet some people in this area that don't have some experience with the church, whether positive or negative. And I would venture to say that's probably true with you here today. Okay? And even in the midst of, of that, Nicodemus thought he knew. He was pretty certain, but he didn't. Popular concepts of salvation. Maybe you have one of these. What, what, does it mean to be, what does it mean to be okay with God, if we were to say it that way? People would say, I've said before, oh, I go to church, or I believe. No, 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 I believe. I believe that Jesus is who he says he is. Or I pray, or I'm a Catholic, or I'm a Methodist, or I'm a Baptist, or I'm a Presbyterian, or whatever it is. Those are, you listen, I'm okay. You know, I'm saying, I've got the right association. I'm, I'm in the church, or whatever it is. These are similar things that Nicodemus would have claimed as well, though he may not have had those same categories. My challenge to you is simple. Says who? Says who? I know that may be what you believe, but are you the only one who believes it? The real question is, what does God say? So let's take a look. John chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, this is the word of the Lord. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council, and he came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no other person could do, perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. How can a man be born when he is old? Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. And Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, and Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. 
The wind blows where it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things? I tell you the truth, we speak of what we know, and we testify, testify to what we have seen, but you, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then when you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Friend, the grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our Lord will stand forever. Pray with me. Father in heaven, simple prayer. God, we ask that as we worship you over your word, that you would take the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts together and make them pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. The big question that we're asking today is, it's actually a really simple one. The title of the sermon is, Must I Be Born Again? Short answer, yes. Jesus teaches that entrance into the kingdom of God is only for those who are born again, that heaven is only a destination for those who are born again, that only those who are saved from the God are those that are born again. He tells Nicodemus that eternal life only belongs to those who are born of the Spirit. And so the big question that you need to ask yourself, I'm begging you to ask yourself this morning, is this simple question. Have you been born again? And so in order to answer that question, we need to ask some more questions. So that's the outline this morning. I'm going to give you some questions. We're going to answer five questions this morning. You ready? Five questions this morning about being born again, okay? Uh, Who's it for? What is it? Where does it come from? How does it happen? And how do I know if it's happened? I'll go through that again. Who is it for? What is it? Where does it come from? How does it happen? And how do I know if it has happened? My goal today is clarity for you to point out the obvious to you. You know, some of your best friends in life are the people that will tell you you have something in your nose. You know what I mean? And so my goal today is for you to see that in God's Word. Point number one, who's it for? All right, so we're looking at this man named Nicodemus. In ver- the first two verses of chapter 3, we learn that he is a Pharisee and a member of the Jewish ruling council. Okay, so what does that mean? Okay, first of all, he was a Pharisee. What is a Pharisee? A Pharisee was a group that, uh, that came into, into influence a little bit before the time that Jesus was born, and they were concerned that people didn't love God enough. That was their main concern. They were concerned that the Jewish society was beginning to mix with the Greek and Hellenistic society, and some of those beliefs about their gods were beginning to bleed into authentic religion of worship of Yahweh, the Old Testament God, okay? All right? So they were really concerned about that. These were the ones that said, no, 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 you need to worship God according according to what the Word said. These were the guys that you would have considered the holy ones, the righteous guys, okay? Uh, they, this, is, this was what they did. However, as noble as their motivations were, you see, motivations aren't enough. That's another sermon. As noble as their motivations were, they made one tragic error. 
they externalized religion. And what I mean by that is they made the, the, what the Bible teaches about how someone can be right with God, they made it accomplishable. They said that if you will do this, and if you will do this, and if you will obey this, and if you'll act this way, say this way, do this stuff, then you will be able to enter the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus says, that's not how it works. But that was their tragic flaws. And so what they did in an effort to, to make people, to, to help people obey the law of God written in the Old Testament is they created traditions and customs such as certain ways to wash your hands, or, or, or they created rules around the Sabbath day. This was a big thing from them. They created rules because the, the, the uh, fourth commandment says, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy and rest, right? And so they created rules about what rest was, how many steps you could take, what you could do. Here's one of the most ridiculous ones that I read about this week. You ready for this? Women could not look in the mirror on Sunday or excuse me, that was, it was Saturday for them, on the Sabbath day because they, were, they would be tempted to pull out a gray hair. Okay? All right? That, 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 anyway, so you see the extent to which they went. All right? The extent to which they went. And it seems noble. But what ended up happening is they... Well, what's up? Let's back up. Okay, we got some popping. Cool. We'll see what's up. What seemed, it seems noble, but what happened... In the process is they destroyed everything that the Old Testament came to say, which is why John the Baptist came onto the scene. All right, so let's look at the second. So he's a high, so summary, he's a highly religious and devout man. Let's look at the second thing he was. It says he was a member of the Sanhedrin, or Sanhedrin. What is that? Or he was a member of the Jewish ruling council. Here's what that was. This was a tribunal or a council set up by the Roman government. Okay, so Romans came in, conquered Israel, set up a government. And 70 men were the, they really accomplished a lot of different departments of leadership. They were political, religious, legislative, legislative. Uh, they, had, they had a lot of different things that they, that they were in charge of over the people. But they were the rulers, okay? Um, they were the most influential men in the society. So he, who's born, being born again for? He was not only a very religious man, but he was also a very influential man. All right, what else? Number three, he was open-minded. He was an open-minded man. He knew what he believed. Do you know that many of the Pharisees had a lot of the Old Testament memorized? It's remarkable. He knew what he believed. He wasn't vague about that. But he couldn't categorize Jesus. And he had a healthy skepticism that led him to ask questions. That's a good thing. Okay? Who's it for? It's for the open-minded. When he saw Jesus' miracles, he had to say, who is this guy? Number four, he was skeptical. He's open-minded. Who's, who's it for? He was skeptical. He came by night. There was something that he wanted to know, but he didn't want to risk everything to find it out. Okay? But who's it for? When you really look at Nicodemus, there's a little bit of everyone there. There's a little bit of whatever natural tendencies that you have. Maybe you tend to be a little more towards the, you know, I'm good, I'm going to do the right things, religious type. Or maybe you, you're more of the, I'm not so sure about that, I'm kind of a doubter type. Wherever you find yourself, there's a little bit of Nicodemus. Who's it for, essentially? It's for, it's for everyone. If you're honest with yourself, and you have some questions, you're in the right place. Number, all right, who's it for? Point number two, what is it? 
Another way to say that is, what does it do? What is it? What does it do? Okay, love this. All right, so you're looking at chapter 3 again. You're looking at chapter 3 again, and um, he comes in, and, G- and you know, he's trained. He's a diplomatic guy. He's in politics. He comes in, he says, Jesus, rabbi. He wasn't a rabbi, right? It's rabbi. We've, we see, you know, it's, you, we know that you're a teacher come from God who could, he gives this kind of diplomatic way to introduce himself to Jesus. What's fascinating is Jesus doesn't acknowledge it at all, doesn't answer any question that he made, he just goes straight to the point, right? Here's, here's what's happened, this is fascinating in, the, in this passage, is that Jesus goes right to the question that he knew that he was asking, Jesus, in his divine nature, could see the reason that he came here. You know, when you know someone really well, you know the kind of things they're going to ask. You know, I have, a, I have a problem. I'm not a, I, I don't need Alcoholics Anonymous. I need Serial Anonymous, right? I have a, a really bad addiction to, to Serial, right? Foster's laughing because he's always on me about it, right? Like, just anything. It doesn't matter. Lucky Charms, Fruity Loops, doesn't matter. Whatever. You know what I mean? I love it. And so my wife knows me so well that about 9.30 at night when she sees me get up off the couch or whatever we're doing and start hovering over towards the pantry, she says, don't you get some of that cereal, right? She knows. Jesus, on a far more profound level, can meet Nicodemus and look into his heart, skip all the pretense, and say... I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he's born again. Because the real question that Nicodemus was asking is a similar question to another guy who we call the rich young ruler came in to ask and says, what do I need to do to get eternal life? What do I need to do to get eternal life? That was the question that he came with that night. And Jesus didn't even have to listen to him say it. He says, I tell you the truth, it's a, I, it's, and tell you the truth, it may say verily, verily in your translation or whatever, but the Greek is amen, amen. Amen, amen, right? It means may it be so, may it be so, or listen up, okay? Listen up. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. So what does this mean, born again. Josh talked about it a minute ago to the kids and did a great job with that explanation. It's spiritual rebirth. When Jesus says born again, that word that, we, that I have translated in my translation again is the Greek word anothen, which means from above. It's a good way to think about it. It's not that born again is wrong. You do need a second birth, but you need a birth from above. In other words, God has got to do something to your spirit. Okay? Nicodemus is completely blown away by this statement. And we're conditioned to hear about it, right? Because we've had presidents in the past consider themselves born again and stuff like that, right? We're conditioned to hear about it. But if you can imagine yourself hearing this for this for the first time, this is ridiculous. Born again. What is, and, and that's how Nicodemus responds. How can a man be born when he is old? Surely he cannot enter into his mother's womb a second time to be born. This defies the possibility of nature. Jesus is ridiculous. And so... Jesus explains, verse 5, look at it with me. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to the Spirit. Okay, so, what, so what's going on here? First of all, he repeats it. He repeats the same phrase. You cannot enter the kingdom of God without this. So we might as well figure out what it is. 
All right? The first thing he says is that you have to be born of water and the Spirit. And there are a lot of different theologians that have a lot of different opinions about what this means, water and the Spirit. The Spirit part's pretty easy because he clarifies that in verse 6. But what is this reference to water? Some people say it means Christian baptism. Some say it refers to John's baptism. Some say uh, that it's the amniotic fluid in the womb, right? That your water breaks if you're pregnant, right? That's what we say. It's actually not water, right? But they, some is referring to that, okay? Here's, based on my research, here's what I think it is. I think that the water is another symbol for the Holy Spirit, and here's why. Another, another symbol for the Spirit that needs, that he's the agent, the Holy Spirit, we'll talk about that in just a minute, that changes us. Here's why. The Bible teaches that God is three in one. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. Okay? And in Ezekiel chapter 36, God talks about his Spirit this way. Uh, in a similar way to the passage Josh read earlier, Israel's rebelled again. And God sends them into exile. He uses a pagan nation, they come in, he sends them into exile. And then he makes him this promise in Ezekiel chapter 36 that he's going to bring him back. And this is what he says. Listen to me. Verse 24. For I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I'm going to bring you back. This is what he says he's going to do. Verse 25. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. Sounds similar. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. One of the things that we're going to talk about in just a minute is that's a great description of what it means to be born again. That God does something to you that changes the internal fabric of your soul, and now you're a different person altogether. Okay? Notice how he describes it. He says, like water. So I think what's going on in this passage is it's just another way. Again, it's not like Nicodemus didn't know about the Old Testament. He knew about this passage. Okay? He's probably saying that you need the Spirit to cleanse you, and you need the Spirit. And then he clarifies it and says, flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to to spirit. In other words, this isn't, I'm not Nicodemus, I'm not talking about physical birth. I'm talking about something else. I'm talking about spiritual birth here. What he's talking about is this idea of spiritual regeneration, a word that Josh used earlier. Okay? Spiritual regeneration. A spiritual rebirth that God makes you new on the inside. Born again is a term referring to the God revitalizing a person by implanting new desire, new purpose, and moral ability where they didn't have the ability before, and a positive response to God, the gospel, and his word. A couple verses that show this in, as well as this passage. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, if anyone's placed their hope, faith, hope, faith, and trust in Christ... He is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. Titus chapter 3 and verse 4, But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us not because of the righteous things that we had done, but because of His mercy, He saved us through the washing water of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. And in that passage we just read, I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit in you. What is it? Rebirth is the process 
of God regenerating the broken, marred soul that you came equipped with and giving you new desires, tastes. And he's saying if you don't have it or if it hasn't happened to you, then you don't get to enter the kingdom of God. What does that look like? Well, Paul, the Apostle Paul, you may have heard of him before. He wrote most of the New Testament. He was someone who hated God. Hated, or didn't hate God. He loved God, hated Jesus. And absolutely wanted to destroy the church and was on a mission to persecute and kill people who, who believed in Jesus. And one day he's on his mission and God appears to him, Jesus appears to him, and he's radically changed. And in chapter 9 of the book of Acts, verse 17, it says that something like scales fall off of his eyes. What does this look like? What does it mean? Paul was never the same man again. In fact, everything that he worked against is now what he worked for. There was vaguely a comparison between the two aims of their lives at the beginning. There's other examples in, in Scripture. Another one that, that you could read about is, is, a, is a woman by the name of Rosaria Butterfield. She wrote a book called The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. She was a lesbian and an open activist, and by her own admission hated Christianity and, and the things it stood for. And then one day after she wrote a review of a Christian conference called Promise Keepers in the paper, a pastor wrote her a, a letter and said, I don't think you understand the Bible. I'd love to have you over my house, and let's talk about it. And she couldn't, she couldn't get rid of the notion. She tried to throw the letter away, and she couldn't, and she eventually agreed, called him up, and went to his house. And she says, I was not looking for Jesus. I was not looking to be converted. Being converted, or born again, similar idea, ruined my life. I lost my job. I lost all my, the, the biggest relationships that I had. Being converted ruined my life. She wasn't looking for it, but it happened. And now she's a completely different person, married, pastor's wife, as a matter of fact. Okay? My story goes like this. Maybe it's this similar for you. I grew up around church, but didn't get it. I grew up around it. My, my parents took me to church. We did that kind of thing, but it didn't make any sense to me. I didn't want it, didn't care about it. And then one day I did. Is it because no one ever told me the gospel before for all those years prior? No. It's because God finally made it make sense to me. I was born again. And if we could go through this congregation, we could tell all kinds of, just seeing stories as I look out amongst you guys today, stories of how God did something in you to change you. That you had, what, what the rebirth is, is you have new feelings. St. Augustine says the loves of your heart are being reordered. Someone who has been reborn, reborn experiences the love of things of God that before were not lovely to them and a dislike for things that used to satisfy. And a new understanding. The lights are turned on, and the Bible makes sense. I remember after I was born again, I had a Bible, had my name on it. But it's like, the, it, I just opened it for the first time. It's like, I can actually read this now. Born again. And then, what does it mean to be born again? Is you have a new identity. 
You belong to God and you are his child. Chapter 1 of John, verse 12. Yet to all who receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gave them the right to become children of God, verse 13, children born not of natural descent nor of human decision, but born of God. Being born again means you're not the same person anymore. Has that happened to you? Who's it for? What is it? What does it do now? Where's it from? Where's it from? Like your physical birth, you have no control over your spiritual birth. I love that question Josh asked a minute ago, didn't you? Remember the time you decided to be born? It didn't happen, right? You have no control over your, no power to make it happen. It happens to you. In verse 8, Jesus says a new birth is like the wind. You can see the effects of the wind, but you can't see the wind. You don't know where it comes from or where it goes. Nicodemus is blown away by this statement in verse 9. How can this be, he says. And then Jesus' response in verse 10 is fascinating. In verse 10, Nicodemus says, how can this be, the fact that, that, I, don't have any, that, that I don't have any control? And Jesus says, you are a teacher in Israel and you don't understand these things? What is he talking about? You see, the story of the Bible from the first page to the last is a story that goes something like this. Man rebelled against God. And God had every right to dump his full wrath and justice. There was nothing they could do to overcome that. But God in his mercy made a way. You see, when Adam and Eve sinned for the first time, God didn't come to them and go, come on, guys, get your act together. Clean it up. He said, no, put a flaming, put an air, put an angel with a flaming sword. Don't let him in here anymore, and I'll make a way. That's the story of the whole Bible. Not a single page of this book do we see it being taught that you just need to get yourself together. The overwhelming majority of these words says that God has to miraculously act in order for you to see the kingdom of heaven. It comes from God. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 says, As for you, you were dead in your trespasses and sin. This was a hard thing for Nicodemus to grasp because remember what I said? He had built his whole religious view of God around accomplishing salvation, just getting the things right. That's why it was so hard for him to understand that being born again is something that happens outside of your control. Who's it for? What is it? What does it do? Where does it come from? How does it happen? Number four, how does it happen? Who makes it possible? Okay, verses 11 through 15, he says to him, verse 12, he says this, I have spoken of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? He's reiterating what he said in verse 11. Listen, the whole Bible teaches this. This is nothing new. If you can't understand this, then how can you understand the things that are going to come from heaven, which I'm about to tell you? And he does in verse 13. These heavenly things, he gives, them, he gives Nicodemus an example of that in verse 13. And he says, no one has ever gone into heaven except the one who, has, who came from heaven, the Son of Man. He's like, let me give you a glimpse into these heavenly things, the one that you've been waiting for, the Messiah. It's the Son of Man who left heaven and came here. Son of man is Jesus' favorite term for himself. It's a term you find in Daniel. It means Messiah. He's saying someone has to come down. He's referring to himself. 
Someone has to come down. And then he follows that up in verse 14. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Jesus says to Nicodemus, you want to know the plan, the heavenly things? That just as those Israelites, when they were bitten by that snake, were helpless. But when they looked to the bronze snake that Moses had made, the poison no longer had an effect. In the same way, the poison that runs through your veins, the sinful nature that you have, and the, sinful, the sins that you have committed, you are hopeless and helpless to do anything about. But if you look to the Son of Man lifted up, the poison won't have any effect. That's what he's teaching in this passage. It's interesting to me, if you see an ambulance drive by today, on the side of the ambulance, you'll see a serpent on a stick. That's where this comes from, or this is where that comes from. Jesus is saying that he will be lifted up, and those who believe in him will be saved from the poison of sin and have eternal life. And then in verse 15, he says that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. So what's the question that we're asking right now? One of these last questions. How does it happen? Okay. You have to look to the Son of Man lifted up. That's how it happens. In other words, there's a connection between God working in you and you believing and trusting in what Jesus has accomplished on the cross. There's a connection, like hand and glove. They go together. That God, does, that God regenerates your soul. They go together. That, that you will not be able to believe unless God is making you born again, and yet you need to believe in order to have the new birth. To receive the new birth, you must repent of your sin and place your faith in the Son of Man who is lifted up. What is repentance? Well, when we talk about repentance, a lot of times we talk about being sorry for your sin. That's true. That's a real aspect of it. But the relevant aspect for repentance, if you're looking at this passage, is the way the Israelites would have felt as they were on the ground dying from the poison. How did that feel? Helpless. You see, the condition for you to be reborn, the connection here, is you have to know your moral bankruptcy. You have to know that there's nothing you can do to earn it. I want you to think about it like this. Oftentimes we think, I need to get myself together, and I'll go to church. I just need to get myself together and get right with the Lord. Well, this is what that's akin to. Imagine that you live in a landfill. This is your home. And God says to you, he comes to you, he says, listen, I'm going to condemn you to death unless you clean this place up. I'll be back in a few hours. Okay? What do you do? You work. You work as hard as you can. You clean things up. You straighten things up. You get the vacuum out. You're doing everything you do. What's the problem? It's a landfill. Okay? Let's say he comes back, he says, that's not good enough. I'll give you another year. And so what do you do? You work. He comes back, he says, that's not good enough. I'll give you a lifetime. Guess what happens at the end of your lifetime? You still live in a landfill. And it will never be cleaned up. And he comes back and he says, listen, sorry, you had ample chance. Ball game. 
And Jesus comes in at that moment and says, yeah, this place is a mess, but I'll take the penalty. Repentance is understanding that your soul is a landfill of sin, and you have no ability. And then faith. Our English word believe doesn't capture the full meaning of the Greek word pistuo, to believe. Biblically, faith is intellectual agreement, I believe that's true, and complete trust. Best illustration I can give, I'm a, something of a daredevil. If anything is kind of risky, I'm in. I want to do it, right? Bungee jumping, roller coasters, whatever, I'm in. Let's do it, right? Um, I'm game. People tell me the older I get, that'll decrease, right? But anyway, for now, we're still, I'm still game on. And on the bucket list is, is jumping out of a plane, parachute, okay? I want to go skydiving. That's on the bucket list, always has been. Let me explain faith by using a parachute as an example, okay? Now, if you're going to jump out of a plane with a parachute, let's say the first thing you do is you need to study this thing, you need to understand how it works. But let's say you're scared, so you really dive in, and you look at the engineering behind it. You study the specs. This much weight, this cord is this big, and so the tension will be that, and then they'll hold me, and, and you look at it, and, and the engineering works out. I got it. The engineering is great. The parachute works. And then experientially, you go out to the airfield, and you see hundreds of people jumping out of the plane, and then the parachute works just fine. Okay? So you have intellectual knowledge of how it works and that it works, and you now have experiential knowledge in the fact that you've seen it work now countless time and time and time again. But that is vastly different than jumping out of the plane and pulling the ripcord. That's biblical faith. Biblical faith is understanding how the thing works. There's an aspect of that. That's belief. Biblical faith is experiencing it, seeing it work in the lives of others. That's fine too. But biblical faith also includes this aspect of you're ready to pull the ripcord, and if it doesn't work, nothing ain't going to work. That's what it means to believe. And here is the promise of this passage Verse 15, everyone who believes like that, ripcord, okay? In him may have eternal life. This is Gospel 101. You're real bad off, but you're not even close to as bad off in comparison to the blood of the divine God. That his blood can handle your landfill. Time and time again, his blood can handle our lives because he's God, okay? That's belief 101. Shorter Catechism, question 86, says this, What is faith in Jesus Christ? Faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace whereby we rest, we receive and rest upon him alone. My question is, what are you resting on today? Final question, very quickly, we're done. How do I know it's happened? We've talked about who is it, who's it for, what is it, where is it, what does it do, where is it from, how does it happen, but how do I know? When a baby's born, he knows it. He's all of the sudden keenly aware of an altogether different reality. You know, when each of my kids were born, the life was never the same again. 
right? It, it, was, it, was, it wasn't vague. You want to know how you can know if you've been a born again? Are you different? Nicodemus was. Chapter 19, after Jesus is crucified, verse 38, this is what we read. They had to figure out what to do with his body, and no one wanted to touch it. No one wanted to be associated with that scandal. Verse 38 of chapter 19, we read, After these things, Joseph of Marathia, who was a disciple of Jesus Christ, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might, have to, that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body, Nicodemus also, who had come to Jesus earlier by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes and about 75 pounds in weight. And so they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with spices, as was the burial custom. Nicodemus was willing to commit political suicide. Why? Because he was a different guy. You know, women and slaves were the ones who prepared bodies for burial. Not prominent men, not Nicodemus. So why did he do it? He's a different guy. Title of the sermon, Must I Be Born Again? Yeah. And so the question that I'm asking you today is a question of clarification. How about you? Maybe your mom and dad are believers and you're Maybe you're young here today, you're just a kid. It's still a question you need to ask. Maybe you've been around the church the whole, your whole life, and it's, and it's just a question you need to ask. Maybe you got burned by the church for some odd reason, and this is your first time in the pew in a long, long time. Let me ask you the question. Have you been born again? I wish I could have time after the service to talk to each one of you. Unfortunately, I have to leave. But it doesn't mean you can't answer the question. Let me invite you now, but also let me invite you for the rest of this day. Ask the question, have you been born again? If you have ripcord type of faith, and you believe that your soul is landfill type of soul, and you look to Jesus Christ, who, like the serpent, was lifted up, don't take my word for it. Everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Lord in heaven, as we consider your word today, help us to understand. We have no control over new birth, but we can see you high and lifted up and place our faith there. The connection of is a mystery. The Lord, work for your glory and our good. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.